0: Are we on the verge of the next Terminator? Is our future God going to be AI? What is the philosophical implications of having a computer that's smarter than us?
1: On the physical side, we've experienced this for a long time. Like if you look at a digger, it can dig out a lot more earth than a human with a shovel. Um, you know, by probably a hundred or a thousand times or something and do so for longer and more consistently. So it'll be good in the sense that we can use this to apply to like scientific problems and all kinds of other problems and it'll probably actually advance all technology faster because of that and that's really interesting
0: and also how do you build things people want to use so this is a very deep philosophical debate on the implications of ai so we we could go anywhere Uh, i think ai i always think people want to know who i'm talking to just to like set the expectation so I guess how would you encapsulate what you do?
1: Oh well, for the last fifteen years, I've been running a software development agency. So I build you know fully custom software, web-based, um, mobile apps, mostly for internal business use, not so much consumer-facing. Um, always varied, always interesting, always com- and you're learning about completely different industries all the time. But the idea is usually, I mean, people obviously use a piece of software that they can buy off the shelf if it does what they want so where we come in is usually either that they can't find something that really works for their particular company or they're trying to create some really unique market advantage
0: Hmm. what's one of what's one of the things you're most proud of around that space where you're like wow that's fucking that's unique how do we create that you can swear by the way if you don't want me to i can try
1: no that's fine (laughs) um look um a current project that we've nearly finished is is just world class um We've just built a full no-code platform for basically what is a law firm and um, and it just allows them to just configure up all their own processes and they just own the platform completely. And the reason they've got us to build one rather than using one off the shelf is primarily because they kind of sit at the hub of their part of the law industry and they have all sorts of other companies and practitioners that plug into them. And apart from their own needs, they want to be able to, to configure out business processes for all their customers. So hmm. that was um, that's truly was an incredibly challenging project to basically a... build something that allows someone with no developer experience to build their own custom applications, and and to do so in a space that ha- is with such high security requirements and other kind of high end requirements as law.
0: Hmm. What, what on that like uh, do, do, is there behavioral components that come into what you do because I've seen things like the way um, mobile apps load is like if you see the gray coming as the page loads you're less likely to be stressed about how long it's taking you know user experience stuff that like, like or even just in an elevator they put a mirror in there so you don't realize how long you're waiting do you think about that? How people consume uh, the app itself? The mirror
1: in the elevator so you could check your hair or something? Yeah, but, well you forget. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> you forget how long it takes.
1: That's the very fine edge of the wedge of, you know, a field called UX or user experience. So mm. user experience, you're obviously trying to minimize the steps, make things as clear and obvious as possible, make sure people don't have to use their human memory, like use the app's memory where you can. Um and and things like that. Now, when you're getting to sort of like how it emotively impacts people along the journey, that's the real fine edge of sort of specialist UX consulting.
0: Hmm. What what have, what is the lessons you sort of learn about humans? Like have you been surprised at what, about the way they consume a product? You thought it was gonna be this Good way Christian. but don't yeah. often get that. Oh yeah, People <laughs> always
1: ask about tech rather than humans. That's a really good question. Um, yes, always surprised. So one of the things I love doing is getting out and um, seeing software working at the coalface with people using it. So we have um, tablets that run on the dashboard of trucks. We have you know apps that have been used in medical centres and things like that, hmm. and and all kinds of situations and. Every time you go and you actually watch users using it, you get surprises and, and you find out things that just like, you know, for instance, where they leave something charged, if that's practical or impractical, it means it's never charged because the charging stations in the wrong place or, <laughs> you know, the fact that, yeah, there's so many environmental factors in the way people do their job. And you often, we've had software where people have been using it for years and there's been no feedback through the customer about a problem. And then you go and watch someone using it and you go, hey, you're really struggling with that, bit. we can, we need to change that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, always different to what you expect.
0: Yeah, I mean, I imagine there's a certain component of pattern recognition. So you've seen a certain type of behavior from a certain type of person. So you, you try to build that in and then there's iteration. Yes, from actually witnessing it. How, yes. how do you, I guess, stop yourself from having confirmation bias in the sense that you expect this to happen, right. but how do you right. keep it practical and appropriate for the actual person?
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah so you start by trying to design things based on the best of your experience but there's just no substitute for proper user testing where you try and sit back and just observe what people really do and you (laughs) can usually see when they're struggling with something because they'll pause or they'll sort of go in the wrong direction and yeah unless you do that you will always if you just talk to people about it even your confirmation bias will kick in you've just got to observe
0: well you, you seem you seem very practical and rational how's that been from a uh, developing your business and the eq and emotional component of trying to nurture and support people because you seem i imagine you have software people they're very thing orientated as opposed to people orientated generally generally yeah but not always so yes. how do you navigate the the people component within an organization
1: well, we try to employ people who will relate well to customers and be a good fit in the team. Hmm. Um, we've found that extremely important. And I haven't found typically that there's this big kind of conflict between really good developers and people with good people skills. Some of my best developers have the best people skills hmm. as well. I mean, yeah, it's not always the case. Sometimes you'll get someone who's just an awesome developer and their people skills are <laughs> less awesome. But um But, you know, I I just think it's really important because what happens in a lot of businesses is you get all this fat because you have the people, people with people skills dealing with the customers, and then they have to try and translate to the developers doing the development. Whereas we'll try and have a project lead developer who's leading the project, understands it really deeply, but is also relating directly to the customer so they understand the customer's world and they can kind of, Otherwise, what happens is a lot of things often get lost in translation. Mm. So we find that a really good model, but that does require hiring the right people in the first place. Mm. But the good part is we've had very sort of strong internal culture because of the kind of people we've had working for us. And that's just one of the reasons why we've, we've had sort of staff retention typically sitting up around five, seven years plus um, in an industry where a lot of people turn over in 18 months or two years.
0: What do you think that is? Because I, I see a lot of these people going to Google and they're having their fucking muffin, and then right. they go somewhere else. and Now they're getting two hundred and fifty k, and then four hundred, and they don't seem to be emotionally invested in any component of the business. They like like the perks or whatnot. How? Do, what do you think has been useful in retaining people or or um, yeah, attracting I, them?
1: I can't speak for Google, but <laughs> there um a lot of the sort of big tech culture in the states has had this sort of and and it's translated down to new zealand a bit as well has had this culture of paying developers a lot and then just like sucking the life out of them you know just expecting them just to smash out the hours and live and breathe it and um we really believe in work-life balance so you know our all our employees work a normal week if it was a real emergency they might work a bit extra but it's not normal at all and um so i think that's a factor but a big factor is also a type of projects we do like if you're a small cog in a really enormous software project you can spend like years just working in one tiny corner of it like i've heard of people just working on one object within an application for years um and that gets pretty boring likewise if you're sort of with a really small a company that does really small development, it might be all a bit trivial and low-end and not very interesting. So we're in this really nice sweet spot where our projects are large, really interesting to developers, um, but they get to be quite holistically involved across the project because the teams are usually only sort of two to five people.
0: Mm. So it sounds like you have a high bar of recruitment in the sense because people skills, overarching view and understanding of larger projects and being able to do large components of it. Yes. How are you doing that in New Zealand? How are you finding these people? are you just struggling, just slaving away, trying to find people from the uh, depths? Mostly
1: just through my network, to be honest. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, we haven't ever gone through a recruitment agency. Hmm. So, yeah.
0: What, what's your process to bring someone on? Like, is it how do you identify people's skills, or do you take them for a drink, or what are you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think the people skills part is pretty easy to pick up on. Um, What's harder is to pick up on like how capable someone will actually be as a developer. So I try and get my other developers involved in key recruitment because they can have like really deep technical chats with them Hmm. and um, give me feedback on that. But you never really – well, that's why it's really good to go on a recommendation too. Like if somebody's worked with somebody before or – um that's really awesome because they kind of know their working style
0: so you wouldn't like put them in front of, here's this project go or anything like that. i guess because you can't really do that because you're exposing ip or privacy uh, or
1: if, you know once they're employed they're signed up to all the things in your employment contract yeah
0: mm. no i know i mean like so you need a test competency you're using referral as a means to test competency or recommendation you see mm-hmm. it's almost like if you want a football player you put them you getting them to play football you're like oh are you good
1: yeah, we've tried using tests before, and yeah. it was weird. It didn't really seem to give very meaningful results. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I found a better result was just really deep conversations between developers. They kind of tend to suss out where people are at. Hmm.
0: <laughs> Random. Uh, we we talked off here like we were going to talk about AI, but then I just started yes. going straight into your business <laughs> right. how's right. it working. Yeah. But you you're, you've got a speech coming up around AI. Mm. Oh, 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 yes. Curious, what who yes. are you speaking to, or what do you?
1: It's an entrepreneurs organization event. I think it's just called EO Talks. It's ah. a TEDx style um, evening of people doing about fifteen minute talks. So mine's on um, AI and you.
0: Hmm. I didn't know I was going to be in it. no AI. (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. well actually eo is a name coming up often now quite a few podcast guests richard conway oh yeah yep richard
1: conway i think was the person who introduced me to eo
0: ah oh so you go as well as well as being a talker yes Yes. interesting yeah because there's some level of benefit with shared humanity and going in depth and also stretching and one of the structures they have is you say how i as opposed to how you should
1: yes when you're sharing you're always sharing from experience rather than giving people advice hmm. it's, it's a really good thing to learn in life actually i find it works you know in, in every aspect of life it's a better way to just sort of let people take what they want to take from your experience rather than saying you should do this or you should do that which creates an odd dynamic
0: <laughs> you yeah, are not people many people like being lectured huh?
1: no and it takes away the discovery for them, but also when you say that, like it creates an awkwardness because if they don't do what you say, then they haven't listened to your advice, and that's kind of awkward. And if they do do what you say, and then it works out badly, that could be even more awkward.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So this AI and you, what, what what are some of the topics you're hitting on? What what, what Are we getting a behind-the-scenes scoop or whatever?
1: It's a little bit of a cross-section of everything. So it's talking about um, AI in terms of where it's at now, and the main thing it's impacting right now is businesses more than individuals. Um, But it's also then talking about, okay, how is it likely to affect us as individuals and our relationships and our society as this kind of kicks off. And um, you know, especially as AI has become more relatable, like right now we're mainly using them as tools but they are also getting more relatable. Like you can sit down like this and kind of try and have a chat with them and that's getting better and better. And and you see kids doing this with Siri. Like we go, hey Siri, can you do this? And they just sit down and talk to Siri like it's a person. Hmm. So how will that affect like human society as we have more relatable AIs? Um, so it's, it's really about the tiers of looking at the effect of AI on businesses on us as individuals our relationships and then society as a whole near term and then longer term and the longer term is where it gets really sort of interesting in a way
0: yeah you have any predictions not that you'll know but like what 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 is your biggest fear regarding ai's future
1: well i think the short-term impacts aren't scary so the short-term impacts are more to do with how people will use ai right any technology any empowering that you give to humans is often empowers humans for good and evil, right? Um, so how people use it and how it affects us. Like if we look at the last big thing, social media, um, we can now start to see what some of the societal effects are. Like I, I love the way Facebook enables us to stay a lot more connected to remote friends and far now, But, you know, you can often see that the conversation around social media is about a lot of toxic effects. Too. And um, I think AI will be like that. Like, there will be there will be good things and there'll be things that it affects us negatively at a so societal level. And and things like dis- disrupting employment markets could also create a lot of stress. But, so those are the main kind of, like, downside risks right now. I mean, right now, AI is not sentient. Um, I think it was Dr. Toby Walsh that pointed out that they have no desires of their own so they don't want to take over and <laughs> they won't and they're not really capable of it but i mean they're not even capable of writing a full computer application they can just write bits of it for you but um hmm. longer term is more interesting because if you get something called an artificial general intelligence like the superpower that humans have that ai still doesn't have is the ability to generalize from one area of thinking and apply the insights from that to a whole different domain. And AI still can't do that. If AI could do that, then it will have, it will be quite a sort of super intelligence because it will be able to. if you think about it like this, like imagine if every time a human learned something, every other human knew it straight away. That'd be pretty amazing. But you know, AI is already like that. Every time ChatGPT learns something, Everyone using chat GPT has access to that learning. Um, if you combine that with the ability to sort of generalize as humans do, then what you've got is kind of a super intelligence that potentially can be far greater than what we are in intelligence, and there's good and bad parts about that. I mean, On the physical side we've experienced this for a long time like if you look at a digger it can dig out a lot more earth than a human with a shovel (laughs) um you know by probably a hundred or a thousand times or something and do so for longer and more consistently so it'll be good in the sense that we can use this to apply to like scientific problems and all kinds of other problems and it'll probably actually advance all technology faster because of that and that's Mm -hmm. really interesting like you know, it already cracked the the key problem with fusion power, which was how to control the plasma inside a fusion reactor, which um, they couldn't do with heuristic computer algorithms. So it'll advance all kinds of areas of science. But how do we keep control of something that maybe becomes sort of like equivalent, like if you imagine the difference between an ant and a human? What if we're the ant and it's the human in terms of the difference in thinking power capability and intelligence? That, that mm. becomes a scary prospect.
0: Yeah, as soon, as soon as it realizes we're not in its best interest of the goal it's trying to achieve, it could be interesting.
1: And, and that's an interesting point, like the goal it's trying to achieve. like One of the concerns with AI is not so much that it'll sort of suddenly become like a conscious, sentient entity and try and take over everything, it's, it's more that you might get unintended consequences where AI has too narrow an objective. So I don't know if you've seen, I think it's called Class of 08 or Class of 09. It's, um, it's a series on one of the streaming channels about kind of like a future FBI scenario where they implement AI and law enforcement hmm. and automated surveillance. And the thing about it is is that its objective is to maintain law and order. But actually, humans don't go to the nth degree to maintain law and order. Because if that means sort of, well, I mean, maybe in some countries they do, but if that means just sort of killing people that are getting in the way of your program to, to achieve that outcome, we might think that's not appropriate in the pursuit of law and order. <laughs> oh, yeah. So whereas in this particular case I don't want to give too much away, but the computer program oversteps the line of what's appropriate in pursuing its narrow objective. Mm. And and I think there's a sort of a, a famous thought experiment about an AI that's designed to maximise the production of paper clips and it decides that it just needs to harness all the Earth's resources to make paper clips. And so it just totally overthinks its like purpose, hmm. you
0: know. So, do you think the 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 narrowness of the objective is what will lead to potential harm? And if so, then what's the counter to making sure it's not too narrow?
1: I think that you know, science fiction plays a really good role because it's <laughs> yeah. enabled us to sort of stop and think about a lot of the problems before they happen. Mm. And I think there's a lot of people with awareness of a need to control AI. The one difficulty with it, though, is that how do you put limits on something if maybe your competitors won't? And and I mean competitors mm. not just in a business sense, but what about a military sense? Mm. So you might say, we don't want AI to be able to autonomously kill people in the battlefield, but now the the some other power has created AI robots that autonomously kill people, and they react so fast that a human soldier can't fight them what do we do except create the same? Hmm. So you do get a potential arms race that could be sort of worrying.
0: Well, that's the thing. I, I'm a strong believer that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the best protection to humans' cruelty is is to enable a fair race in a sense, you know, have people that can stop them getting too far out into, you know, either a monopoly or some sort of superpower from a military sense.
1: Right, so, I mean... In sort of in society in the past, the media has been, you know, the fourth estate that has mm. aimed to kind of balance industry and balance government and things like that, and hold accountability.
0: Oh yeah, go on. You, you know, got over this, can of worms? Yeah, go on. The media. <laughs>
1: well, the media. the problem with media is that investigative journalism budgets have been gutted oh, yeah. by the rise of social platforms and digital marketing, because there's just not nearly as much ad spend going through. Traditional journalism, so that role of the media as the fourth estate is kind of semi broken down in society. So it's a really good question as to how do we create control structures, you know, that keep a balance between the different areas of power within mm. a society.
0: Well, I was talking to a lady. She's in PR, and she was saying the volume of content that needs to be created—it's stuff. Um, oh it's stuff the media coded, outlet. yeah yep. it, it's it's substantial so the, the quality of the information is deteriorated and then you think about what's being incentivized as clicks and advertisers spend mm-hmm. so the more influence an advertiser has it might not be you know said directly but it's implied and then the ability to track users and if users keep getting drawn to more emotion emotive content more uh More clickbait. More clickbaity. So what's the consequence of the truth, you know?
1: Yes, it's a problem and all the filter bubbles and things and, yeah.
0: I'll be curious, so there was an evolutionary psychologist that was on, Lex Friedman, and he was talking about how we have an adaptative view of the world. So it's not necessarily the truth, it's just what has enabled us to survive. Because if we invest too much energy in trying to process things, you know, it would be a lot of things a lot of energy you need to consume to sustain humans right. so we're not quite seeing it as it is yes then yes. then we're creating ai based on our misguided principles potentially how do you ensure ai continues to pursue the truth of life instead of being
1: so you're saying that <laughs> to conserve energy humans aren't actually obsessed with truth only a kind of a close enough approximation to get by yeah yeah interesting um, you don't have to agree with that? No, it's, yeah. a, it's a very interesting point. I've never heard it made before. And and then we, you know, we are the sources of information that ultimately go into AIs, and there's another layer of potential misinterpretation within AIs. Mm. Um, I don't really know, but <laughs> I know that it's come up as you know, AI is doing things like being overtly racist because. Oh, yeah you know, maybe the information they've picked up on and processing something or, or kind of unconsciously like profiling, like, like, say, for instance, I do, I think job screening was a particular one. So there is software now that uses AI to help, you know, if you've got stacks and stacks of CVs and you're a big corporation, you're hiring thousands of people, how do you kind of like narrow that down to enough, a small enough people that people, you know, humans can interview them efficiently. So, i think there's ais in the space that like trawl through all the cvs and help make recommendations and Mm. what they have found is there can be quite a lot of weird biases come through (laughs) but it's it's almost more of like just profiling based on its previous data
0: yeah well it's tricky i was talking um i just pushed this button because it goes for 30 minutes and then starts again um so the the Elon Musk was talking about how they're training ChatGPT to lie in a way. So mm, it's based. The
1: industry term is hallucinating.
0: Hallucinating, is yeah. it? Is that the word? Yes. Because because you know, there's certain things that are socially unacceptable to be interpreted from the data. Right, I and, see what you mean. Yeah, and then there's other instances yeah. where you know they don't want the AI to teach you how to you know make a bomb or whatever right so it's hindering right. its access to truth in some way and training it uh, inconsistent with reality do you think there's a consequence with that or
1: i've never thought about it <laughs> it does remind me a little bit of questions we asked about the web in the early days should it just be the wild west mm. or should it be more controlled and um yeah you know i mean you don't want chat GPT to tell people how to make a bomb so you know you, you do have to teach it to lie and say well it don't it doesn't have to lie it just have to say i'm not going to tell you that yeah um but i think the problem is that you can kind of get around a lot of this just by asking more obscure questions like um you might ask it uh what materials you should avoid selling because people could use them to make a bomb you know like i'm just spitballing <laughs> here but there are, i have heard people put this that yeah, if yeah, you yeah. actually know how to ask the right questions you can still get the information out of it
0: mm. H- how do you how do you limit it in the sense like do you have any idea how that works because like i've done that i've tried to fuck with them and find loopholes and then if there was certain periods where if you talk to a certain type of model within it then it, you could get some leeway well how are you, how any idea how they are inhibiting what can be said and how do they ensure it's not being used wrongly?
1: Yeah, well, we're not an AI <laughs> yeah, okay. sort of, um, <laughs> you know, we're not an AI manufacturer. Like we integrate AIs using open AI um, API that you mentioned earlier on when we were chatting. And, um, but so we don't, you know, we don't know a lot about what goes on behind the scenes.
0: Mm. Okay. I,
1: I can say that. It's interesting, you know, it, it's almost indistinguishable from magic um, and even to software developers. I mean, we have some idea of the principles, but I still can't grasp how it can achieve everything it does. Mm. And, um, But, you know, from from what I can tell, even AI researchers often don't understand everything it does. There's a thing called Golem functionality where it's just like, oh, it can do that. I've got no idea how, even though I built it. Um, oh. I don't understand how it can do that. Wow! And so, you know, when AI researchers are struggling to understand how it works and how it will develop in future, you know, what hope do the rest of us have to have much clue? Yes,
0: yeah, interesting point. do Do you do you have an overarching understanding of how it basically works, like six billion, you know, neural networks or whatever how that means? If not, we can we can go down the software route. Uh,
1: I mean, I understand things like how pattern recognition works. You know, if you show if you show AI, you know, a million photo cat photos, and it sort of defined, looking at the boundaries, it tries to define the shapes in that. And then it kind of ha- works out the percentage likelihood that any given shape in another photo might be a cat. And in fact, AI is a bit at recognizing cats and cat photos and humans are now. So um, that's just pattern recognition. And then you have sort of deep reinforcement learning like um the way humans learn we learn things are reinforced oh that was good that was good that was good or that was bad and we kind of Hmm. you know things bring things up in our consciousness or push them down based on that but knowing the principles of ai and knowing how it really works are two different things
0: it's fascinating Uh, completely side tangent i'm wondering you know, someone was saying that to me. Certain types of technology, no matter how well run, break for some reason.
1: Right, right. Do you mean software?
0: Software, yeah, maybe software. Yeah. It was more, how much of nature is incorporate, like the principles of natural law, in a sense, is incorporated in technology. Do you ever, th- do you ever think about, you know?
1: You asked some really good existential <laughs> questions. Um, well, I don't know if are. that's existential, but just very deep questions. I mean, there is a thing called code rot, but that's not really, you know, it's not really nature. It's not really the laws of physics interfering with your code or anything. Hmm. Because that might be a question is like, you know, I mean, there's various kind of quantum mechanics involved in computers, even a non-quantum computer. Um, the very concept of a semiconductor it relies on quantum jumping. So can you get random things that just throw a computer off based on physics issues, probably. <laughs> but of course, computers always have kind of error correction mechanisms. So they're constantly sort of checksumming things and they'll kind of discard and redo something if they detect an error. So computers should typically be perfect. Um, <laughs> but code rot occurs because anything you build is kind of on top of a stack of all kinds of other technologies. Like computers at their basics are incredibly simple, but incredibly hard to understand. I mean, if you think of the zeros and ones levels, you, mm-hmm. know, you can't really understand that. And then there's a layer upon layer of technology up to something that a human can build on top of. Now, each of those things gets updated and has different versions and compatibilities and they change in how they operate. So if a layer underneath gets changed and no longer properly supports something you built on top, it can break. Hmm. Um, but that yeah, that's not organic. It's just a software development thing.
0: Hmm. Well, I, I've I've seen uh, my my level of understanding code is TikTok, which is basically they're like, yeah, we we t- sound like ten percent of the time is coding, ninety percent is debugging. Not not don't yeah. use those percentages, yeah. but like, why? How does software work? Like, what's the process you go through uh, in order? to to create something? Like, is there stages and steps? <laughs> this is going to be hard for
1: you. Sure, sure. I mean, what are the stages you go through to write a book? I mean, you don't sit down and just write every word, usually. Some people might, but I do. Um, <laughs> what typically happens is you'll probably write out the skeleton of the structure you're going to write about in the book. So that's the kind of architecture phase of your architecting your software to be something um the software of course there's a whole visual design element that you don't have with a book but then you're kind of like writing the chapters like here are all the pieces to deliver on each of these and when you write it it's not perfect first time it needs kind of editing and refinement the <laughs> best analogy i can kind of give off the top of my head <laughs> you did well
0: <laughs> i I'm just i'm just curious you know like in making a car there's a certain degree of division of labor and right, assignment right, to certain yeah, components yeah what is there an archetype of person that tends to be good at different stages you know like the arc the person that creates the archetype or the visual component thinks in a very you know big right. picture sort yes. of way yes. and the person that finds the bugs is very judge uh, detailed orientated find yeah. things wrong with things
1: yeah the um so <laughs> software development these days is broadly split into front-end development and server-side development okay so service-side development is all about data. So it's you set up data models, it's storing data in databases, it's providing data gateways to the front-end applications like mobile apps or web apps that interact with that. So someone whose life is around business logic and data is probably a bit different to a front-end developer because the front-end developer's dealing very much in the user experience area. They're still coding to create the um, the experience and the sort of user interface but um but they typically tend to be much more well, I don't want to generalize too much but they do perhaps tend to be the more people orientated developers because their <laughs> their job is interacting with you know they're creating the part that interacts with humans and they're constantly having to think about human, how humans will interact with it
0: <laughs> is there a certain component of the front end development where it's like you have a process in order to get the the truth of what the client needs, you know. So, part of it's like you make this thing, but it's based on the information from this person. And if that information's flawed, you could make an incredible development. Yes, so is that's there... a huge problem?
1: Ah, okay, it's one of the biggest problems in the industry. Um, yeah, clients don't usually know what they need in more than broad terms. Um, <laughs> yeah, I imagine. and. Yeah. So you, you can do a lot to kind of dig into that. You know, there's a there's a process called jobs to be done, which I really like, which is long form interviews, kind of like this, hmm. where you sit down with someone, you just ask them all about their job, and they just tell you all about their working life. That's one way to draw out kind of a lot of stuff that might not come up if somebody just wrote a list of requirements. Um, at the end of the day, though, the main way this problem is solved is with agile development. So particularly in really large projects, like the mid-sized space that we work in, it's not such a problem. But in large corporates, you often had this problem that business analysis would go in, they would work through requirements with people, they would write up spec sheets, and then they'd build something, they'd put it in front of people, and people would go, this just doesn't do what we want. Mm. Um, And that's because no one could really envisage what they wanted until they started playing with it. So generally what will happen now is people just start sort of creating an interface and dummying it up and prototyping it and putting it in front of people and go, have a play with this, see what it does. Is this what you want or should it be more like something else? And so you just get lots and lots of feedback rounds as you develop the whole kind of process between the user and
0: the software. Hmm. So if I was putting myself in an experience, I'd need to manage the expectation in a certain degree. So a person wants to make this beautiful thing, you're giving them a minimal viable product and they're like, Oh you're like if you didn't tell them, hey, this is gonna look a little shit to start with as we make adjustments. It, how you manage behavior either yes, you
1: have to explain the process to them, yeah. Because okay. yeah, sometimes the prototype might be a little bit uglier than the finished product. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you, do you think about the behavioral part? So like someone comes in, you do this long form interview to identify problems, you yeah. have a minimal viable product and make adjustments. Do you think about how you give them hope as soon as possible? So we make this how investment. How you give them hope? Yeah, because you know we're making this substantial investment yes. to make this project. Yes. We want to see it progressing quickly and close to what we're hoping to achieve. Otherwise, it's like website developers say: that they they wait six months and then it's finished.
1: Yeah, well, well, I mean, that you never really want that. There has to be feedback cycles along the way, otherwise you're guaranteed to have taken some wrong turns. But I think there's, there's some more and less, more and less, there are some parts that are difficult for clients in a project. So in the early stages, you might do lots of feedback cycles around designing up a user process and wireframing it out and even doing the graphic design and everyone gets clear on what it will look like and sort of what it will do. Um, and then at the end they get to sort of test something and you fine-tune it and give feedback but there can be quite a long gap in the middle for a big project where it's just sort of like they're just getting a big bill each month and they can't really tell what's going on and you're trying to tell them as best you can but um that can be the sort of the period of uncertainty for a client and um yes you want to maintain hope i mean Well, one good thing is I know with (laughs) us is that we've never had a failed project. So we've just done what it takes in the end to make sure we get there, you know. But it is amazing when you hear about these big failed projects. And I've heard unbelievable stats on how many software projects fail. And I think, how does that happen? How do people stay in business if that many projects fail? Mm. Um, You know, it can be as high as sort of 70 percent in some contexts. And, you know, everyone probably well, my age, at least rem- probably remembers the big police INSIS project um, quite a few years ago now, it's probably 20 years ago. And they spent, I think, something like $100 million trying to create a kind of an overarching police computer data warehousing mm-hmm. system, and the project just completely failed. And they got nothing out of it, except the computers that bought for
0: it. Wow. What what leads to you finishing it and then failing it? You know what I mean? Not that specific. Well, we're not doing a $100 million project (laughs) for a start.
1: And we're not doing it for the police. Um, I think that some of the difficulties there may have related to conflicting objectives within the police, changes in requirements along the way. Um, But I think probably it also related to the fact that 20 years ago, um, agile development wasn't such a big thing. The development methodology was more waterfall you get the requirements, it's like what i was talking about before you get the requirements you know and then you build something and then you put it in front of users whereas now there would have been a lot more kind of testing and feedback cycles and iteration
0: um to get to an end objective yeah it makes sense i'm just you've done um 38 minutes mate cool flowing i think uh, that's an interesting point i like i've been talking to lots of creatives and also the technical side of people and it's not too dissimilar in the sense that you want to create this beautiful thing but you have to face the reality of your work in order to achieve what you want and it's a bit of an art where you know how how do you prepare a developer maybe they're seasoned and they're used to it to showing an incomplete project and having it open to judgment do you do you ever mentally prepare them for that or are they already prepared? They're used to us normies not understanding it
1: <laughs> Yeah, um, the developers usually seem to take it pretty well. Hmm. Um, Creative though. Sometimes I find client feedback probably more frustrating than they do because hmm. I've been really off involved often at the kind of thinking conceptual and designing the cons, the product stage and then if you think in your own mind that you've got that really nailed and then you put it into you know some wireframes or something and then people kind of tell you it's all wrong um, it's mm-hmm. a little bit of fronting but i've never i've never not found that working through the feedback that comes from clients so sometimes you think their feedback might be quite off and there is a place sometimes for even like pushing back with your own opinion but I've always found that when you actually work through it together and come to another conclusion, that it's improved something.
0: <laughs> I've um, I've been following Alex Homozy a lot. I don't know if you see him online. No,
1: I, don't. I don't know that name.
0: He's yeah, he, he's American, but he's in in his twenties. He's earning more than all the major CEOs of like Coke and okay. like, and McDonald's, and he's doing well. Um, and he talks about what value is, and okay. what value is is. Um, likelihood of achieving the outcome they want um, with the minimal amount of effort as quickly as possible. Yes. So minimal
1: lo- effort and quickly as possible is really hard with software.
0: Yeah, so so the idea is it's a lot of effort your end, but the client, you want to have them do as little as possible. So right. I'm wondering if we do right. a thought experience, experiment, yeah. would there be a way for either you have only one meeting with them and you've got to get all the information and what you'd need to do that, and then how to deliver it
1: yeah, even quicker. Yeah, in the face though, the whole agile, the agile thing, um, thing and which is so important to getting it right, because you can guarantee that what they say in that first meeting right. won't be the end of the matter in terms of really understanding deeply their needs, because as I said, they don't even understand deeply their needs. They, they may at one level, but they don't at the level of what exactly should be on a screen. How exactly should it flow? Mm. You know? um, so I just don't think it would work for us. I think the the key for us in terms of getting that sort of barrier down, and it's something we're really focused on because because we're in those mid-sized projects.
0: It's not a doorknob; she's just right. stamping. <laughs> because we're in story.
1: those um, mid-sized projects, it's really important for us to try and lower the barrier to development because mid-market companies, you know, software development is just really expensive and. I often say our biggest competitor is people doing nothing because the price is just too high. So one of the things that we've been doing is building our own low-code code code generator and um, also experimenting with AI tools, particularly in terms of how we can fuse the two together, because it's, it's really necessary to sort of just look at your tooling to see how you can kind of rapidly speed up the process of writing code. If you just sit there these days and write all your code as traditional high code, chances are it's just going to be too expensive for the market.
0: Hmm. Is there ever like, cause so he he talks about minimal effort. So it's not just, it doesn't have to just be that one meeting. It's, but how could we turn their their feedback into, let's say a 10 second experience for them where you get the feedback. Um, and then the other thing is he talks about charging more to less people and, People are unable to do that in a lot of ways, but if you're part of them making more money and you have a performance component to your software, do you ever think about the different pricing models that have worked and haven't worked and what you find is useful in your world?
1: You know, for us, well, in our industry, um, like we keep our company quite lean and quite closely aligned between our developer resources and projects. And that allows us to keep our hourly rate down to say around right now around 150 ish an hour um so you either charge a lot more than that and you have a lot more middle layers and fat um, like some of the really big companies um or you don't worry so much about your alignment you can have number quite a few people who aren't really productive some of the time just Mm. ready to plug into a project but um so there's efficiencies like that to try and keep costs down I sort of think I've lost the thread of what you are asking, though. Just just clarify the question again.
0: If, let's say if you were to provide a service that was a million dollars, what yep. would it be? It was more like how can you charge more? How can you charge
1: more? Right, yes, uh, I was heading in that direction. Um, <laughs> Good. So, But first of all, the reason I'm talking about how you keep costs down is because at the moment because there's so many hours required for software development it's not really easy to charge a lot more than what you kind of just have to charge to run a business effectively but obviously it'd be nice in terms of margins of a business to be able to charge a bit more than that or add something on top so our thinking is that if we can get really good low code plus ai driven development tools in place that give us the ability to create high quality software faster than anyone else in the market um, in the mid-market in New Zealand, then then we can charge a bit more of premiums. So that might be either something for the, the background technology we're using, or it might just be we can charge a higher hourly rate because we can shrink down the hours.
0: Hmm. Interesting, because... Uh- I've um randomly been interviewing a lot of agencies because I was gonna have a white label service for them, but then I was like, nah, I, I don't, we don't gel that well me and agencies. But I was talking a lot of them about like um website development and how long it takes and that it's really hard to sell, it's a high cost. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I posed it to my friend. I'm like, if you if you were to do this in seven days, but you charge more, how would you do it? And he's like, oh, we will do this, and he actually ended up changing his business to having designers and agencies as partners so all they do is the development component so they yes, have so a really
1: got a very specialized role yeah, yeah
0: and it and then they're not de- uh, dependent on the uh the feedback of the client and how long that takes the client. and so they yes. can deliver very quickly yeah so apart from ai is there any other way that you're looking on how to turn around things quicker
1: So you said apart from AI, but that's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) Okay, just AI. You know, websites and things. Um, I mean, but it's not just AI though. Obviously, websites have been very commoditized by all these SaaS platforms, where you can just log in and create a website with minimal skills very quickly, Mm. and they can look quite good and be quite good websites up to a point. Um, I mean, that's the way to keep website costs down. But there is a point where certain uh, companies need something a lot more custom than that, um, and maybe more control over the performance and other factors and integration and then they need to go to something like a WordPress based website and then that's a completely different cost scale and that is kind of hard to um hard for people to sort of fathom why you go from a three thousand dollar website to a fifty thousand dollar website just because it's a little bit more complicated
0: mm- for what I mean. I think um, it's, I find it interesting. Like if, if you're, if you're going to go far in New Zealand, in my opinion, is you've you got to charge clients more. But some clients can't pay more. So if you help them earn more and you have a percentage of that increase, because you think… I get of,
1: where you're driving at. So you can use tools to try and make yourself more productive and then you can charge more for your time. But at the same time, there might be other business models you could explore, Right. Like you're saying, you could explore, and it, you get this with website development where it's not that common. But some people will say, "Well, we'll set up an e-commerce store, and we'll take some kind of percentage, or mm. we'll do your SEO work, your search engine optimization, and we'll just take um, a clip on your increased sales from your current sales now." But it's very high risk for a developer, and and it re- it probably also relies on a certain amount of. Um, honesty
0: yeah 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 so so the the workaround of that is um it's a paper show so you're not actually charging on the results because you can't influence those necessarily maybe e-commerce you could a little more but it's more about charging for the thing that you have transparency over and you can influence. right
1: charging for an end result not building a product
0: yeah so, no. you, so
1: you're the investor that, that's the uh, it's a great idea, but it makes you the investor, right? Because now you're the investor in their business, so you really have to. But I guess if you're a very experienced marketer, you might be pretty com- confident in what you can produce.
0: Yeah, it's like if you're going to B two B, like you 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 charge. They don't. They have poor quality leads. They have to invest a lot of money without getting results, and they have limited yeah. time. So if yeah. you if you help actually put them in front of the person that they want to meet, and it's all qualified already. Yes. And just charge at that point because yes. I used to charge yes. Yes. per each time they make a sale because I was like, oh, well, I could make more, but then they wouldn't sell. So I I've changed my own model because of what you're basically just saying there right, at TrustMart. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so it was a complete side. Then I was just curious. I like asking people how would they charge more if they could, and what would they change to so justify. you do
1: seem to have something particular that you're driving at here. Like what? What's? How does this relate to your business model?
0: uh it was just a lesson like so i struggle with self-worth and feeling deserving of charging a price so i'd always try and um tack into the performance component because then i can charge more because i'm delivering it and right. it gives me reassurance right. yes but it's more just the realization that price is a huge determiner of the success of a business you know and being able to charge more is the same amount of work you have better clients and there's less you know frustrations yes. and iterations. Yes. So there's no actually ulterior motive as to asking. It's more just the realization how important price is and understanding why some people can charge more yeah. and also to test yeah. if less effort delivering quicker and achieving the outcome they want is actually value. Yes. Seems to be. Yes.
1: And I think if you can create some kind of success-driven business model where you get paid for results, it's definitely more sellable. Yeah it made de-risks a lot for the client
0: yeah well, see he wrote a book called irresistible offers and that's what it's right. about how yes. to create an offer yes. that's easy to sell yeah because i used to just be told what i'm selling and yes. now i can think about what i'm selling which is a bit of a problem in itself but yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah, you just have to have the sort of financial buffer to probably be able to explore the actual effects of running a business model like that for a while. <laughs> yeah. <before.
0: laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll see. I'll let you know. So we've done um we're at the the end of our podcast. Uh, I don't know why I took it there, but what would be I guess a very interesting, wide ranging <laughs> yeah, we'll go, go yeah. anywhere, brother. Yeah. I guess what would be something that you would want as like a closing realization, either about AI or about something you're interested in, what would be someone listening that you'd like to impart a curious thought?
1: We've covered so much territory, <laughs> it, make, it makes it hard. Um, <clears throat> well, I do think AI is extremely important right now. I think I think my, my closing observation would be that if people aren't exploring how AI might affect their industry, they should be. Um, it's still early enough that if they get onto it now, they're probably going to be ahead of the curve in most industries, probably a bit behind the curve in marketing. Um, they're only doing it now. But um, and yeah, you know, I think, look, regardless of what the future is, we have to embrace it. And we're probably going to be better placed as a, as a society to know what we want to control about AI, if we engage with it and work with it, we're not going to get rid of it. So and it's all our competitors will be using it. And. I say that because you know there are certain industries where AI will have really big effects. But even outside of that, every industry there's a bunch of tools that will just speed up productivity for staff.
0: Yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, it was a very varied subject matter. You did well. Um, all the best with your speech, and thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Ryan. I appreciate the
1: interesting questions. <laughs> You're right, brother. oh well, you survived.